Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to have chief business officers reflect on their careers and offer personal examples of how they have navigated difficult situations and learn from their experiences as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBO Speaks. My name is Megan Strand, and it is my honor today to be here with Bronte Jones, Vice President for Finance and Administration with Dickinson College. Welcome, Bronte. I am so glad to be here, Megan. So you've been with Dickinson just shy of two years. What precipitated your most recent career move? The opportunity to um, move to a campus that has such a strong commitment to both sustainability and global affairs. Mm. Um, I previously was at St. John's College, which is a much smaller campus um, with a very uh, focused curriculum. So coming to a campus with a broader reach, if you will, um, was very exciting to me. And you've been at several different universities throughout the course of your career. What would you say is one of the first things you do when you accept a new position? Uh, before I even interview, I do my homework on that campus. And the, the fortunate thing for us in higher ed is it's a small world. So start making calls to be sure that I understand the community itself um, and what I might be uh, getting myself into, if you will. Um, but once I'm there, the very first thing I do, and I did this here at Dickinson um, uh, to great success, is get to know the members of my staff. Mm. Um, and so that's something I actually pride myself on. I can tell you the names of all 278 members of my staff. Um, and that, um, I think, is an accomplishment. And it's something that makes them really feel a part of the team. So um, getting to know the people is, is really critical, in my opinion. And is that on a professional level as well as a personal level? Like what sorts of things do you do to try to get to know them? Um, well, a great example is we're about to reorganize our dining services here. Um, and unlike most places, it's not outsourced. It's actually an in-house operation. I literally interviewed everybody that's on the staff from the door checkers to the line servers to the director um, just to understand um, the world from their perspective. Um, and it's interesting what you can learn um, when you take the time to give voice to, to some people who otherwise feel voiceless, if you will. Um, and so, um, but it's also very empowering for them because then they feel like they are a part of the decision making or what's happening from their vantage point does matter. And it probably also makes them feel that they have a have a line into that higher level of administration. So if anything were to come up, they, they might have an, a, a voice and a place to go. That's exactly right. That I started my day today with the um, a few members of the house cleaning staff who had some concerns. And they don't think twice about saying, can we sit down and talk to you? And that's important because I want everybody on my staff, from my associate vice presidents down to my housekeepers, um, to feel like they can talk to me um, so that we can get to a solution together. It probably gives you a really good sense of what's happening around campus as well. Uh, it does. I get insight to a lot of things before it even hits the, the, the gossip 
chain, if you will. So <laughs> it's good to be beneficial. ahead of the gossip chain for sure. <laughs> Well, I would love to go back and explore a little bit about how you started down the higher education career path. When did you first realize that this setting was where you wanted to be professionally? Well, I always knew that I wanted to um, uh, work on a college campus. I'm from a family of educators. So all of my mother's sisters and brothers, and there are eight of them, um, are um, teachers. Well, five of the eight of them are teachers. Um, And so I grew up in that environment. Um, So when I was in school, I always knew that I was going to get my PhD, and I imagined that I would teach. Um, So I actually moved to Austin, Texas, where I did my doctoral work. And when I first went to uh, live there, I worked at the state auditor's office because I wanted to become a Texas resident so that I could pay in-state tuition. That's the fiscal responsibility in me, right? Um, (laughs) And so... Um, When I was working for the state auditor's office, I was auditing colleges and universities, their financial aid programs. And as I was coming into um, uh, uh, entrance and exit conferences, I just came in contact with a number of administrators who that, I I hate to say this, I found less than impressive. Mm. And so I actually made the decision that rather than be in the classroom, I would take my financial acumen and become an administrator and affect change in that way. That is so impressive. You might be the only person I've spoken with who knew from a very young age that they wanted to be in the university setting. Again, I think I attribute that to the educational influence of the family. Sure. Right? You grow up around that, and so that's kind of what you know. You have an MBA in finance, and you just mentioned a, a doctorate degree in higher education. Why was it important for you to get that doctorate degree? Two reasons. Um, One, the academy functions in a different way than a business. Um, There are business principles clearly at at, at play here, but the academy works differently. Okay, Um, And I would dare say that the faculty experience me um, in a different way because I have a terminal degree. And so um, I, they're, they're more apt to, to consider my perspective. I've not once been called kind of the business person. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They see me as a colleague because I have the, the same credentials as they do. So I, I honestly feel that it's made a difference um, in my ability to navigate relationships with the faculty. That's a really good point. Did you always know that that was something you would want to do? I, from the very time that I was a little girl. Um, wow. I knew that I would be Dr. Jones someday. Wow. That's so impressive. I can only wish the same for my young children. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say looking over the course of your career has been your biggest aha moment? Um, My biggest aha moment would be around communication. Um, As I said, um, I have a number of colleagues who um, their financial expertise is bar none. They they understand how this all works. Um, But not everyone has an ability to communicate that um, to the broader campus community. Um, And in the current economic environment, especially the environment of 2008-2009, an inability to translate what was happening in the world to its implications for campus operations, I think um, could be problematic. Um, So whether it's my ability to make presentations to the board, to faculty, to students, um, how I interact in meetings, my email communications, how I uh, convey my decision-making or what challenges we're having, my ability to to effectively do that so that everybody on this campus um, can follow along, right, with our, 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 our planning here um, is critical. So I, you know, I would never have thought that um, 
being an effective communicator and placing a high focus on that uh, could be as important as my financial acumen. But I would dare say that an inability to communicate what I'm doing um, would just be problematic. Can you give a couple examples of ways that you communicate that are maybe a little bit non-traditional, but have really paid off for you from a, a communication perspective? I, I wouldn't necessarily call them non-traditional, but I host a series of brown bag lunches on a very regular basis so that it's an opportunity for me to make a presentation, but more importantly, it's an opportunity for faculty and staff and students to just come in and ask me questions. Um, so when I say I have, a, I have an open door policy, students come and see me on a regular basis, um, but I make sure that I'm out there. I am not the CFO who sits on the third floor of Old West that you never <laughs> see, right? I really am a living, breathing person that's out in the community. So making myself accessible, right? Um, and I put a lot of time into the presentations um, that I, I make. Um, and I've had members of the faculty come up to me and say, you know, this is the first time I've ever understood what was really happening with our money, mm. right? Um, but I've also had members of the dining staff or the grounds crew follow along with what we're doing. And that, to me, is really important because everybody can, can follow then along with the decisions or changes in operations that may be coming because they understand the context for why it's necessary. It's such, a, it's such an interesting skill set, too, because not only can that money and finance piece be so scary, it can, you can also get down into the, re, the weeds so quickly. Well, I would just tell you that my grandfather, whose picture I'm looking at, mm -hmm. um, who's 94, said to me that if you really understand what you're talking about, you can make other people understand what you're talking about. And I take that seriously. Well, I, you know, I, I'm glad that your grandfather imparted that to you, but there are so many people that cannot do that. So <laughs> I, think it's great. I think it's great that you can. What would you say throughout your career is, has been the hardest lesson for you to learn personally in your role? The hardest lesson, I honestly, would be to not assume responsibility for those things which are not mine to take responsibility for. Um, um, there are... Um, there are times that others will abdicate their responsibility for difficult decision-making if they think that you will assume that responsibility. Um, and quite frankly, as the CBO in this economic environment, um, I have enough difficult decisions to make without taking on those um, that really aren't in my, my sphere of influence. That sounds like quite a political lesson to have had to have no, learned. I, I, think it's, I think it's very important because if you're effective, um, at what you do, others will want you to be a part of, and, I, and I'm, I'm a team player, so that's not what I'm saying, right. but I, I own what's mine, and I expect my colleagues to own what's, um, what, in fact, are their responsibilities. Can you speak to your experience as a woman CBO? As a finance major, um, from my undergraduate experience through my MBA, actually through my doctoral studies, um, you become accustomed to... Um, working alongside of male colleagues, male classmates. Um, so I don't know that I even recognize often that I am the only woman in the room, and that's more often the case than not when mm -hmm. you're talking about the finance committee or the investment committee of a board, right? Um, I have learned to work collaboratively kind of across that spectrum, um, and I don't even know that I notice it um, anymore. Um, I, I find that my colleagues 
um, and I work in a number of CFO-related kind of organizations, I find that as long as they're clear that you have the same expertise, um, we just get down to, to, to business. Um, so I don't know that I've, I've recognized it as an impediment. I certainly do wish there were more female CFOs, but I haven't recognized it as a, an impediment in my personal um, professional travels. In your tenure, Bronte, can you think of a pivotal moment that you think has really changed what it means to be a CBO? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a day that clearly comes to mind for me, and that would be September 26th, 2008. Um, that's the day that Wachovia pulled out as the trustee for the Common Fund. Um, mm-hmm. And so many of us, um, either in the short term or the intermediate um, accounts, um, had our money in higher ed with the Common Fund. Um, and the day that the notice came that they were going to freeze our funds, um, and then later that day, there was a notice that we'd have access to about 50% of our funds in a couple of months. Um, that sent shockwaves through higher ed because it changed the face of liquidity. Um, I had colleagues who had their payroll money sitting in their short-term account who were trying to figure out how they were going to fund their payroll a few days later, mm. right? Um, that was kind of right during the period where we started to see a number of bank failures. So again, liquidity and banking relationships changed, um, and it had direct implications on how you were operating on your campuses. And so for me, it was imperative, again, that those communication skills came alive because I needed to have certain conversations with the board of trustees with my fellow senior officers, but then more importantly, with the college community to explain how what was happening in the broader world was going to have, what the impact of that was going to have on our day-to-day operations. Um, And so that's the moment at which it became very clear to me that I have to be able to articulate and communicate effectively how these external things um, have real implications for us. Um, and so from that day to this, um, the, the amount of communicating that I have to do relative to the decisions that come out of this office, um, it's just taken on a whole new dimension. That's a really interesting perspective on that financial challenge. I mean, I think there, I think there are probably many lessons coming out of that, but that's, that's certainly one that is foundational for your yeah. role. What would you say is the biggest challenge facing all CBOs today? I would say... Um, as our students come to campuses um, with greater and greater expectations um, on campuses that um, have a backlog of deferred maintenance, right? Mm. Um, questions around affordability. How do we do it all with the resources that are available to us, right? And again, an ability to frame the conversation so that everybody can take part in the, the discussions about our priorities, and understanding how we take our finite resources and apply them to the the priorities, the established priorities, and being clear about what those are. Because there are many things that we would like to do, but with the bucket I'm working with, these are the things I'm going to do, right? And bringing everybody along in that that decision-making. Um, I, I think is really critical in this environment. And speaking of speaking of challenges, when you face that or any other challenge in your role, where do you tend to turn to get resources or ideas to help you address those challenges? I'm fortunate that I have a number of um, mentors that I can reach out to. 
Um, one in particular, uh, Lucy Lepofsky. I actually met her at a Nakubo um, women's luncheon mm. many, many, many years ago. Uh, and uh, we immediately hit it off. And she has been a mentor and a resource um, for more than 15 years now. Um, I have a number of seasoned professionals um, who are sounding boards, um, not necessarily to um, affect a difference in my decision, but just a sounding board so that I can hear myself think aloud. Um, I also have um, sitting CFOs with whom um, I share ideas, ideas on a regular basis. Um, so I think networking and, and, and having mentors is, is critical um, to, to learning or, or successfully navigating the environment. Have you sort of flipped that dynamic on, on its head and tried to be a mentor for others that you see sort of coming up through the ranks? Oh, most definitely. Um, I'm very active in an organization called HERS, Higher Education Resource Services. Um, it's a leadership institute for women mm. who aspire to leadership roles within the academy, not, not financial, but all um, leadership roles within the academy. Um, I was a participant in the program. I went on to teach in the program. Um, I joined the board and now I'm the board treasurer. And so creating opportunities, I just sponsored one of my staff members to go to the two-week institute at Bryn Mawr. So I, I look forward to creating opportunities for others to stay current in just what's happening within the higher education space. Um, so I take mentoring very seriously, um, and I do that very aggressively with each of the um, associate vice presidents who are who are on my staff now. Um, and I also do that with students. Um, and I would like to believe I have a good relationship with the student body, um, as I was named administrator of the year last year. Wow! By, congratulations by the Student Government Association. So. Um, not many CFOs get that honor, so I felt pretty good about that. <laughs> That's fantastic. When when you are looking through the ranks of your staff or maybe students, what are those qualities that sort of stand out to you as people you want to go help and shepherd as a mentor? Uh, people with vision who um, are willing to put in the work. Um, I, I would say the thing that... Um, is of greatest challenge to me um, are people who have capacity that they never realize, mm. right? Because they don't challenge themselves um, or they want to operate within um, a very narrow comfort zone. Um, so folks with vision and the tenacity to make it happen, um, those are the, the, whether they're staff members or students, those are people that I like to assist and make sure that I can find the resources to help whatever that vision is come to light. You mentioned staying up to date and keeping up on the latest trends being important. How do you personally do that? Are there things that you read or routines that you have to sort of stay apprised of what's happening? I start every day with the latest news. So whether that's uh, a news well, we don't really have newspapers anymore, do we? <laughs> <laughs> only online. Well, uh, only online, exactly. So I would say the first 30, 45 minutes of my day uh, is just seeing what's new, what's happening, what's happening in the world, right? I also make sure that I attend a series of seminars and conferences during the course of the year. I require all of my AVPs to attend a minimum of two external 
um, training opportunities during the course of the year. Um, and then my involvement with various organizations, um, just being sure that I'm abreast of the decision making or the issues that are even on the table. But on a daily basis, I'm following what's happening and, and trying to make the link to what are the implications then to us here at Dickinson or in the broader field of higher education. In your media mix, what sorts of things do you read on your daily as, as part of your daily routine? Which publications? Uh, I, the Chronicle is one that I, I'm I'm looking at often. Uh, I look at the Wall Street Journal on a daily basis. Um, also, New York Times um, and Washington D.C. I follow everything that's happening and, in Washington on a on a on a daily, hourly basis, because I kind of log in throughout the course of the day. Um, But again, understanding um, what's happening, again, in the education space, but also what's happening in the economic um, space as well. What would you say you're doing now as part of your career or professional life that you never imagined you'd be doing 10 years ago? And this might be a hard question for you because you've been imagining this since you were a little girl. Well, I was, but I wasn't, (laughs) right? Um, So even as a CBO, um, I've been involved with facilities management, but at varying degrees, right? So the more sophisticated the institution and the more resources, um, the more opportunities there are. Um, At St. John's, I had the opportunity uh, to uh, renovate um, a building, a histo- well, actually the first act of historic preservation in the city of Annapolis, that building resides on St. John's campus. Wow. And so I had the opportunity to renovate that, that building and, and, and to work through the politics of the Historic Preservation Commission and securing the grant funding to, uh, to do the building, but then working with the architects and the designers and then furnishing the building to be sure that it was appropriate for that structure. Um, here at Dickinson, again, being involved in facilities management, um, but because of our global programs, we own properties abroad. And so I've spent my first two years, um, and I'm sure people will say, poor me, um, traveling (laughs) to uh, Spain, France, Italy, England, um, assessing our properties there and making a determination about whether we should still own those properties. So two days ago, I just completed the sale of our property in Malaga, Spain, which sat on the Mediterranean Sea. Oh, my gosh. Um, Earlier this year, I closed the, the deal on our property in Toulouse, France. Um, so I never imagined that I would be traveling to these places, um, doing assessments of those structures, and then working with real estate uh, folks, attorneys, and the like on the, the, the size transactions that, that we're talking about. Uh, so the skill set, that's a whole other kind of um, skill set that, that comes into play in doing that. So facilities management, I anticipate it. Um, but the level of which I'm involved, I could never have um, envisioned this. And it's exciting. It's it's exciting. Anything else you'd like to share today that I have neglected to ask? It's this question about success equals opportunity plus effort, right? Mm. Um, how does that statement resonate? And, I, I, and this one I do feel really strongly about because um, there's there are one or two examples that, that come to mind for me. Um, and they both go back to when doors open, bringing your best you to the table, right? Um, Because the subsequent doors that open from there um, result from the the initial impressions um, that you get. Um, So I talked about uh, Dr. Lucy Lepofsky, who I, again, met initially at a Nakubo function. Um, 
as a result of our discussion that day, um, she was doing a lot of work with middle states, and they needed someone who had both an enrollment management background and a finance background to do what was going to be a very challenging visit. Um, Lucy recommended me. Um, I went and I served on that team. Apparently, things went very well, and my name immediately got into the fold for finance evaluators. Um, a year and a half later, I was nominated to serve as a commissioner. Um, I've been on the commission now for three years. I'm on the finance committee. But it all came out of an initial introduction and then um, showing up as my best self during that initial um, invitation to serve on an evaluation team. Um, so for those who aspire to these type of roles, um, opportunities will present themselves to you. And it really is important um, to always come right with your best game. Because you really, that old adage that you never know who's watching or who's paying attention um, has just proven to be so true for me. Um, and so I always lead with my, um, my, my best foot. Great advice. Great advice. Well, thank you so much, Bronte, for sharing a little bit about your professional journey with me today. It was great speaking with you. Thank you so much. You can find out more about Bronte in today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of nakubo.org. Make sure you also subscribe to CBO Speaks in iTunes so you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Bronte and myself, we'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. Mm-hmm.